Hello, and welcome to the Booksmarts podcast, where we talk about publishing data and technologies and send you away with some insights that will help you sell more books. I'm your host, Joshua Talent. Well, this week on the Booksmarts podcast, I am excited because I get to talk to a friend of mine, Laura Brady, who is an expert in publishing accessibility and ebooks. She's been around. Golly, Laura, how long ago? Did, I don't want to talk about that. That would make me feel really <laughs> old to, to talk about how how long ago we met each other. But um, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This yeah, is a fun really, opportunity. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So we could talk about eBooks probably forever, um, but I want to focus in on accessibility because it's obviously a really big deal right now. Um, and it's a growing concern for a lot of publishers. But let's start off just talking about trade publishing. You know, accessibility on the uh, more academic side of publishing makes a lot of sense to people. But let's talk about trade publishing. And we and actually, maybe we, we should even talk a little bit about what accessibility is um, from, an, from a publishing perspective. So let's start there. What is What would you say accessibility is in the publishing perspective? And then from there, let's talk about what does it mean uh, in the context of trade publishing specifically? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my take on this is that accessibility is me in trade publishing means publishing thoughtfully and publishing for all readers so that readers of all abilities and types have choice in how they read. And so what that means really is that you're just being thoughtful about how you produce things, both print and digital and also audio. Um, and bringing some thoughtfulness and some awareness of the issues surrounding inclusive publishing to the table when you create those kinds of formats is, I think, critical. And um, that's what accessibility in publishing really means. Um, we can talk about this a little bit more, but I really think that um, one of the key things is that accessibility be, should be something that rolls into everyone's job in a publishing house. And I really mean everyone from the receptionist to the CEO, it should be part of what everyone does and they should bring accessibility and inclusive publishing thinking to almost everything they do hmm. and, and sort of they're sort of rejigging how we think about producing books and um, folding accessibility into it can lead to some seismic changes from from the current status quo. That's um, interesting. So yeah. you're you're taking a step back from just like oh it's ebook accessibility, right? Yeah. It's really about the entire process, the entire kind of outlook of how a publisher you know, looks at their processes from yep. start to finish. So yep. how, just out of curiosity, how would that person who is, uh, you know, the, the receptionist of the front desk, how would that person in a role that isn't a direct, you know, responsible for publishing role, um, how would they be impacted by accessibility in their thinking? How do you, how do you think that inclusivity comes into play in that? Yeah, so that person probably doesn't have a ton of power when it comes to affecting change, but they can be, um, answering the phone in an inclusive way, you know, thinking about, it can be even things like thinking about pronoun usage. One of the best examples I've heard of recently is that customer service needs to be trained on accessibility. So they don't do something like ask a deaf blind user to send a screenshot hmm. um, of what is troubling them and why they can't read a content. You know, it can be really mean, you know, small things like that, but also really meaningful things. Um, the other example I have is that I really think that the key to moving the needle on accessibility issues is to get editorial staff involved mm -hmm. 
And editorial staff, I think it's fair to say, are very overworked and really bear the burden of the publishing process. And so this feels a little bit like a pile-on. It's not how I intend it. But if editors are doing things like marking language shifts and marking the difference between, say, italics and emphasis in content, that can be preserved all the way through the production process and can be meaningfully coded in an ebook and meaningfully coded for an audiobook reading um, experience. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is really, uh, it feels kind of minor and sort of low on the totem pole of priorities. But if editors are thinking about those things, we are a a couple miles ahead when it comes to creating content seamlessly and accessibly. And not having to go later in the process and redo work that was already done or even make the process, you know, more extensive or have to outsource it or pay more money for it or any of that other stuff. Absolutely. You know, you're starting with the people who know, yeah. you know, it's the same yeah. thing we talk about with, uh, with metadata, right? That metadata needs to start earlier in the process yeah. and the people who know the book need to be describing it and, yeah. and that kind of thing. But it's, yeah, it's the same thing there. So speaking of trade publishing specifically, as opposed to, say, academic publishing or or things like that, how would you say um, in a trade publisher, the approach is a little different than than where we've seen accessibility, especially, let's say, on the ebook side? Um, How would you say accessibility comes into play in a trade publisher that's a little different, maybe? Yeah, uh, there's there's a number of things. I mean, thinking about readers and thinking about inclusivity can be right from the acquisition stage. Like you can be, um, you know, building characters with difference into a fiction or that sort of thing. Um, you could be asking authors to write image descriptions, particularly of nonfiction content. Mm-hmm. And if there's an awareness of accessibility like that at that level, then that can be built into contracts even. Um, if you're planning far enough ahead, you can start a collaboration with um, maybe a third party who will fund and produce a Braille edition of content. If you're, you know, if you start from, you know, two years out, that's a total possibility. There are people in the marketplace who can collaborate like that. But it also means things like, um, you know, making your eBooks accessibly. That's I haven't said that out loud yet, but I think that's really important. A lot of ebooks are made at the end of the publishing production pipeline with um, some ambivalence and maybe not a lot of thought. And mm-hmm. I would love to change that fundamentally. Ebook publishing should be a revolution for people with print disabilities. And we are 15 years in or so, and it's just not. And that's because there are a lot of slapdash ebooks in the marketplace that just don't meet even accessibility minimums. It's a problem. Yeah. Um, and in the, pub- in the context of trade publishing, higher ed publishing for sure, but trade publishing, you can publishers can do things like um, get their workflow certified, say through a program like Benetech's Global Certified Accessible. I love that process because it's an education Mm-hmm. because it's iterative. What Benetech does is it takes one of your eBooks, looks at it, gives you feedback and tells you to go fix it. And then through the process of fixing it, you figure out all the kinks in your workflow and correct them um, and then send it back. And then they'll tell you what you have to do again, because it's a process. Um, one, of, one of the main messages I would love listeners to take away from this podcast is this. Accessibility is a culture and accessibility is a process. Mm-hmm. And um, if, you know, if you don't know a ton about it, it can feel really overwhelming, especially once you start to sort of scratch the surface of what's available on the Internet. 
but just start, you know, Mm -hmm. that's accessibility is a culture, accessibility is a process and just start. Like it, it may be baby steps, but you know, dig in, go on, just try. It could be something you starting with something as simple as coding language shifts in your content and then working up to writing image descriptions and then taking a keen look at the built environment in your office to make sure that it meets accessibility standards, you know, and then planning an accessible event where everyone is welcome and people of all kinds of um, abilities and disabilities can enjoy it in a full way. So. Yeah. And that, that idea, like, again, we're talking about if, if this is a culture shift, if this is a, this is a, a process and a culture shift together, then it, it means that it can't just be driven by the, the one person on the production team who's responsible for ebook creation. You know, it needs to be a top down from the, from the executive level. How do we handle, you know, the content, the accessibility of our content in a way that is going to be meaningful down the line? And that also means that like, you have to look at it from a sales perspective and look at it from a revenue generation perspective. And when you build accessible content, you actually like the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze. Like there's, there's this, there's this value of, of, you know, actually putting the work into it does actually mean potential higher potential revenue because you're opening up the ability for more people to access your content. That's exactly right. Yeah. Make it easy for people to buy your books. And one of the ways of doing that is making really accessible content. I, you know, one other thing I would love to mention is that uh, publishers should really audit their own websites, particularly if they have an e-commerce website. And by audit it, I don't mean audit it yourself. Spend some time and money to buy a third-party auditor who can evaluate particularly things like the checkout process to make sure that people who can't see or or have um, disabilities of some sort that prevent them from interacting in a um, so-called normal way with your website, you know, the expected interaction, Audit that process and make sure that they can buy your books. We want people to buy your books. And if they can't read it, that's one thing. If they can't buy it, that's also another thing, you know, make that easy. That's a that's a simple first step that you can take. I mean, mm-hmm. I say simple. It's not simple. Making website isn't simple, but that is a step you can take. Yeah, definitely. And there's been a lot of talk recently about the legal ramifications of accessibility. Uh, Over in Europe, there are changes happening. Um, Can you speak to that and what you see potentially coming down the pike for for non-European publishers? Yeah, for sure. There's a major piece of legislation in the EU called the European Accessibility Act. Um, It was uh, went into um, effect in 2019. And there's a kind of a gradation with this legislation. It goes into full effect in June 2025. So there's still a few years out. But essentially, ebooks are seen as a service, just like learning platforms and websites are seen as a service. That's how they're interpreted in that legal mechanism. And if your digital content doesn't meet strict accessibility minimum standards, you will not be able to sell it into the EU. Um, so why, how, why should North American publishers think about that? That's the EU. That's not us. Doesn't matter, right? Well, in Canada, where I'm from, French language publishers are a little bit ahead of English language publishers, and that's because they are already selling into the EU and they're already thinking about those things and trying to get their house in order. And then also, if you've visited a website today and had to accept all cookies, you can thank the EU for that. That's GDPR legislation that's rippled out around the world. 
Um, the, you know, I, I wouldn't sleep on the EAA. It may feel like you're a tiny publisher in America who doesn't need to pay attention to European legislation, but this will ripple out and it will impact your marketplace, I promise. Um, it, it remains to be seen what kind of effect that's going to have, but I, you know, my advice is just get your house in order and publish accessibly because, you know, you'll sell more books. So this is going to impact new products. Do you know, or do you do you have an indication that's going to affect older? Like I built an ebook ten years ago, and you know, e, in EPUB two or something. The backlist is one hundred percent affected. Okay. So if your backlist isn't accessible, you will not be able to sell it. It's a major undertaking for European publishers at the moment. Um, it is almost all anyone's talking about in some circles. Uh, and this is this, you know, there are mechanisms to opt out of it. Like if you're only producing manga or comics or graphic novels, those are exempt. Um, and if you're, you know, your annual revenue is uh, less than 2 million euro, I believe, then you're exempt. You know, there are some um, opt outs. They're small. I'm going to say that for sure. Most content is subject to the EAA, backlist included. So um, a lot of publishers in Europe right now sort of going through their sales records and deciding which are their favorite children on their backlist to remediate. It's a ton of work. Um, yeah. It's good work. I, you know, accessible content is better content for everyone. So putting in the time and making that content better is a win-win-win, in my opinion. Yeah, and that, that cleanup process can be a pain in the rear, but it really comes down to do you do you think that uh, you can sell more products if you have that book available? And and for you know the the backlist is continuing to grow, but that doesn't mean that the backlist isn't beneficial for a publisher because it's still what eighty percent or so of all of all books that are sold are backlist titles. And if you know if you're worried about I've got you know a twenty year old title that I haven't I've sold any copies of, okay, maybe that that one gets you know just put it out of print, we're done with it, or we just won't sell it in the EU or whatever. But there's still in the last five years, like look at look at the last five years of your books, and you'll see that the vast majority of your sales are coming from that. I think uh, it was BookNet Canada that did a study on that a couple of years ago um, and found that it was that two to five year range was a really high percentage of sales. Um, so yeah, it's really important to be willing to go back and, and look at that backlist as well. Yeah, it's an undertaking, but there's resources and sometimes you can find ways and means. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who works at a publisher um, and is responsible for the technology side or maybe the, maybe the ebook creation side, and they need to convince their bosses about this? Where can they go to get information to be able to say, here's the, here's the reasons, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Mr. CEO or Ms. CEO, you know, what, here's what I think we should be doing. And here's how we can implement that. There's obviously resources available. So what would you say a first step? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, five years ago, there was, you know, very little out there um, in terms of helping you with this specific kind of question. But we live in a bit of a golden age of resources when it comes to accessible publishing. There's a couple of resources I'd like to point to. One is a website called APLN.ca. 
It stands for Accessible Publishing Learning Network. This is um, something that an organization in Canada uh, wrote and built. Um, they're called eBound Canada, um, and it's full of really good content. Uh, some of it I'm responsible for, so I should just make that clear at the get at the start. But um, most of the content was written by the folks at NELS, the National Network for Equitable Library Services, and they're a really amazing organization who employs a load of people with print disabilities to do the work of inclusive publishing. And a lot of those articles were written by those staff. Um, it's a tremendous resource that answers almost all the questions, including things like, how do I convince my boss to take this seriously? But also, you know, what, you know, there's downloadables like a checklist for checking an ebook for thorough accessibility, some plain language explainers of the web content accessibility guidelines which are anything but plain language. Um, so it's nice to have those interpreted in a quotidian accessible way. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the other really important piece of the APLN is the community hub where anyone can create an account and post a question and crowdsource answers from experts around the world. Um, it's a really useful piece of the APLN and mm -hmm. I encourage you all to go have a look and check it out the DAISY Consortium has a website. I think it's daisy.org. I should double check that, but I'm pretty sure it's daisy.org. Mm -hmm. And it is a rich website full of um, uh, webinars from the past, full of tools that you can use like Ace by Daisy and EPUB Checker, um, uh, and full of uh, explainers of how to do specific pieces of the accessible publishing puzzle really tremendous resource and they have a sister site called inclusivepublishing.org um, that has a newsletter which you all should sign up for it's always full of interesting things and then finally there's another site out of europe called inclusive publishing in practice i um i will find that url and send it to you joshua mm -hmm. um it is a really useful resource really useful and it's in Dutch, German, Spanish, and English. So if English isn't your first language, you have options. That's great. Yeah, it's it's an important thing and I'm glad that there's so many resources available and and like you said tools as well. So if you're trying to, you know, just figure out what do I need to do? What how big of an effort is this going to be? You know, running your files through ACE and maybe talking to Benetech and, you know, starting some sort of a, a, a assessment process is going to be a really good first step for someone yeah. on the practical side of things. Uh, yeah. What would you say we're backing into, and you mentioned earlier, things like having the author write image descriptions and, and things like that. Any other recommendations or suggestions on the kind of in the process, uh, the publishing process that you've seen publishers doing to really, uh, from a practical perspective, take this accessibility and put it a little further back in the process? Yeah, I think that, you know, Instead of having one person in a publishing house who's responsible for accessibility, I mean, it's good to have specialists, but I think one of the problems with particularly indie publishing is that it's a very small house with, you know, four or five employees wearing five or six different hats, that sort of thing. So if you have all of that knowledge condensed in one person um, and that person leaves, then you have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so making sure that the responsibility and the knowledge about accessible publishing is spread throughout an organization, I think is really critical, particularly for small publishers. But I would also say that there's operational things you could do. You know, the question of image descriptions, for example, I work with one publisher who insists on image descriptions from the author, 
And if they're not provided, they're billed for the um, service of writing the image descriptions for them. And, you know, I think that's the kind of really revolutionary thing. I don't, it's not all on the author. It's not all on the editors. But if we're all sharing some piece of that work, then the work is easier, you know, sharing the load. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Very practical. I like uh, practicality. I think that we need we need to be thinking about these things, but also just jumping in and doing them and figuring out you know the process you know day by day. So thank you very much, Laura. I really appreciate you coming on the show to share your expertise. Mm-hmm. Can you give people information about yourself where they can follow you and and the kind of work that you do? I mean, you're working in this space. What do you what can you do to help publishers as well? Yeah. So I um, I teach classes at Toronto Metropolitan University and uh, soon Simon Fraser University. On accessible publishing and on making ebooks, um, I you can find me at laurabrady.ca and on Twitter at uh, laurab7, I think. Um, and then I'm doing lo- loads of work these days. Like I'm doing a research project on accessibility metadata, which is a critical piece of the accessibility puzzle, and which not a ton of people are doing really well at present. Um, that's a, a space that needs help. I also make ebooks and I consult for publishers about how to do things a little bit better. Um, I call myself an accessibility busybody, and it really bears out in fact. <laughs> <laughs> I also do things like I'm on the board of the Accessible Books Consortium, which is a part of WIPO in Geneva. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, they administer the Marrakesh Treaty. That's uh, fun work. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am a busybody. I promise. I'm everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'll have links to all of the uh, the locations and places that Laura's talked about in the show notes. Uh, thanks again. I really appreciate you joining the oh, show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the BookSmarts podcast. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. And also share this podcast with your colleagues, especially those who need to learn more about accessibility. So if you have a topic suggestion or feedback about the show, you can email me at joshua at firebrandtech.com. Thanks for joining me and getting smarter about your books. Mm-hmm.